All right. Thank you guys so much for being here. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 12 tonight. So I know it's been a while since the last time that we met, but tonight we're going to be jumping right back into Revelation. And the next three weeks, we're basically going to be in a series called The Victory of Christ. Essentially, chapters 12, 13, and 14, they outline the gospel for us and the greater kind of the greater narrative of the Bible. And specifically, these chapters really focus in on on the gospel and and how the gospel is relayed from the point of view of John having these visions. Um, in fact, cha- chapter 12 specifically details for us the birth of Christ um, and his eventual defeat of Satan. And this is told through two different visions that John has. So we're going to look at both of these visions tonight. So um, the first vision picks up, it's the first six verses here, so I'll go ahead and read it. Starting in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them onto the earth. And a dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So you guys may have heard about the woman and the dragon and the beast and all this stuff. And tonight specifically, we're mostly going to be focusing on the woman, her child, and the dragon. So let's first get out of the way what all of this represents so that we can talk about what it means. So first, the woman represents Israel. It talks about the sun and the moon and the 12 stars. The 12 stars represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the woman is meant to represent Israel, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. Her child represents Jesus. So the child that she has, one, this is obviously reflective of the Virgin Mary having Jesus, but more importantly, this is meant to represent Israel and the fact that Israel led to Christ. And finally, the dragon, I'm sure you guys guessed this already, but the dragon represents Satan. And so the, the seven heads, the seven diadems, and the ten horns, this is all meant to represent great power. We've seen these numbers repeating before. We know seven is kind of this number of completion. Um, Ten is also used several different times throughout Revelation, but these are all just meant to represent that this dragon has great power and authority. This is meant to show us that Satan does have power and authority, but it's also meant to show us how much greater the power and authority of God are, because it's so much greater than Satan's. We know that. We know that he binds up Satan. We know that he has conquered Satan. We know that Satan has to ask him for permission to do anything. And so we see that despite Satan having power and authority, God's is so much greater. But so then, you know, we, we're kind of introduced to all the characters here. We see this woman, she's in pain, she's giving birth, and then, and then this dragon is entered into the scene. And essentially what's happening here is it kind of describes a dragon and his tail brings down a third of the stars. And all this is kind of going on. This is kind of meant to set up for us the birth of Christ. So first of all, the passage describes his tail bringing down a third of the stars. This, the stars here likely represent demons or fallen angels. So angels that were up in heaven that Satan brought down with him when he fell from heaven, when God cast him out. And so some scholars think that this scene here could represent Satan's first fall when 
when God cast him out of heaven, he sent him into hell. When he, he brought a third of the angels with him, a lot of people think that this is what that represents. And so what this does, this is setting the stage for us. It's showing us that Satan has already been cast out of heaven, so he's already against God. He's opposed to God. He's already sinned. He's already, he's already shown that he's full of pride, that he wants to have more authority and power and all of this. And God has cast him out of heaven, so he already hates God. Then there's this woman. And this woman, who meant, who's meant to represent Israel, is about to give birth. And so on a small scale, we see this you know, in the Gospels. We see this in the Christmas story. But on a much larger scale, what we see is that this is meant to be just like how Israel waited. Year. This woman is in pain. She's in the pain of childbirth, just like Israel for years was in pain, waiting for the Messiah that God had promised them. So Israel's pain, all those years, they're suffering, all the things that they went through, that's all being compared to birthing pains. But to take it even further back, go back all the way back to Abraham, who God promised him a child. He said, you are going to have a child. You're going to bear a child. And this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And Abraham went through all these years. He's like, I'm too old. I can't do this. I'm too old to have children. He ended up leaving God's plan and instead sleeping with one of his slaves in order to have a child that way. And yet God still was faithful to him and gave him a child of his own by his wife. We see that in the same way throughout the story of Israel, where God promises them a coming Messiah, promises them a child who will come and save them from their sins. But they go through years of disobedience and, and turning away from the promise of God. And for all these years, they're punished for it. And they go into exile. We see all these things happen to them. And so we see kind of the same thing happening here with this woman who's meant to represent Israel is in the pain of childbirth and the pain of all this. And Satan is there. He's ready. He's ready to attack this child when it's born. This recalls all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where we're in the garden and sin has happened and God is speaking to Adam and Eve and he tells them that there's going to be enmity and strife between the child and Satan, between the offspring and Satan. And that, you know, there's going to be, He's going to bruise his, he's going to strike his heel and he's going to stomp on his head. Like we see all this happening there. And this is meant to parallel that. Like this, the fact that Satan, this dragon here, you know, meant to represent the serpent, is here waiting for this child to be born so that he can devour him. However, we see that when this child, the Messiah, is born, he is not devoured or defeated by the dragon. Instead, it says here that not only is he not devoured, not only is he not defeated, but he's exalted to the throne. We see that God exalts him above everything else and he exalts him to himself and to the throne. So we see here that this child is not devoured in the beginning. This child ends up defeating Satan. We're going to talk more about that in a minute, but we see this child ends up defeating Satan in the long run. And then what we see is that the child's mother flees into the wilderness to escape her oppressor, which, again, is something that we've seen before. This is, this is now paralleling back to Exodus, and we see God rescue his people from the hands of the Egyptians, and we see them fleeing into the wilderness, and they're safe from the Egyptians there, but they're also completely and totally reliant on God while they're in this wilderness. See, this is a place where we see what's important here is that this is a place where God's people, again, they're utterly dependent on God. They have to rely on him for food. They have to rely on him for nourishment. They have to rely on him for everything. But what we also see here, that they're safe from the hands of their oppressors because Egypt's not going to follow them into the wilderness. And just like that, we see that God 
has continued to keep his people safe every time that they're in exile, every time that they're in the wilderness. He's continued to keep them safe and keep them reliant on him and nourish them and give them everything that they need while also keeping them safe from their enemies. So we see all of this symbolism here, all of this happening, but this all doesn't mean anything if we can't connect it to where we are now. So if we can't take what this all says and apply it and say, hey, this is what this means for us today. Like this is why this matters for us now. So we've already seen this, this birth narrative happen. This is supposed, this is exactly like the Christmas story. This is showing us the Messiah coming into the world. But then what does this mean for us now? First of all, number one, this means that God has always had a plan for our redemption. God always had a plan for our redemption. From the very beginning, when he was talking to Adam and Eve in the garden and promised them that the, that the offspring would come and that he would defeat the serpent, all the way to now in Revelation where we see this where we see John seeing this vision, looking back on the fact that this has already happened, where this child has already come and already defeated the serpent. We see that God fulfills his promises and he's fulfilled every promise he has made since the beginning and that he always had a plan for redemption. Always. Number two, we see that times of suffering force us to rely on God. Times of suffering force us to rely on God. And this is important because this is where we see that the woman has to flee into the wilderness. And in the wilderness is where she is completely reliant on God because there's nothing there for her to eat. There's nothing there for her to keep her alive. There's nothing there for her to drink. But God continues to supply her every need, just like he did for his people when they escaped from Pharaoh. They were in the wilderness and he, he literally dropped manna from the sky. Like God has always provided for his people in the wilderness. But the wilderness is where they learn to rely on him completely. And so times of suffering is what God uses to, help, to make us rely on him completely. And this is, this is what we're going to see a little bit more in the second vision. But it's important for us because we know that Satan is still alive. We know that Satan is still warring with us today. And we know that he is still seeking our destruction. And so we know that we're going to experience times of suffering and hardship and persecution while here on earth. And that's, that's exactly what is being addressed here in these visions. So now the second vision. Starting in verse 7, it says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you and in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times and time and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, 
And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the, on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And so here, this vision goes a little bit deeper. It goes a little bit longer than the other one. And here we're starting to see things get a little bit more poetic. Like here we're starting to see things happening where it's like, it's almost like this folk tale. Like we, we see this... The, the dragon is still chasing the woman. He gets into this big battle with the angels. And then all of a sudden he, you know, we see him, him sending out a river after her and the earth swallows up. Like we see all of this stuff happening here. But, but very simply, the second vision reveals more about Christ's victory and the dragon's ongoing attempt to destroy God's people as we see in this vision. So first we begin with the, this image of Michael. In Daniel, Michael is presented as the spiritual guardian of God's people. We see this in chapter 10, verses 13 and 21, and in chapter 12, verse 1. And then in Jude, chapter 9, he is identified as an archangel. So he's identified as essentially the, like, the head of the angels. He's someone who speaks for God. He's someone who delivers messages. His words echo with God's words. Like We see all these important things said about him in Jude, chapter 9. And so we know that Michael is important. Um, and chapter 9 is also where we see Michael, and he's fighting with Satan, um, there as well. So this is kind of a parallel to that. And so essentially here, futurists believe that Michael's battle with the dragon. So dispensationalists, futurists, all those who believe that these events are yet to happen, they all believe that Michael's battle with the dragon represents the beginning of the great tribulation. For our purposes specifically, we're going to be assuming that this simply represents Michael fighting demonic powers on our behalf. So Verses 8 and 9 likely symbolize the defeat of Satan at the cross. Now, there's different views on this. There's different people who'd say different things. Like some people would say, no, 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 this, this goes back to his original fall. You know, this is back then. Um, but I think for us, what we view this as, as we view this as th basically through the lens of the victory of Christ. Like this is, Christ has already accomplished this victory for us. He's already done this for us. And he has risen up and defeated Satan on our behalf. The one who rose up to devour and defeat him was eventually defeated by him. And then verses 10 and 11 show us the results of this defeat. And this is the great news for us. It shows us right here. The great news for us is that Satan can no longer accuse us. He no longer has any authority of, over our standing before God. He has no authority in heaven. He is no longer allowed to be in heaven. He still wars with us. Spiritual warfare is very real. We see that in our lives. We see it all around us. But the bottom line is that Satan can no longer accuse us. He has no authority over us. He has no claim over us anymore. Then we get into this part. So we see that the dragon is cast out of heaven. We see that he is now down on the earth and that he no longer has any claim over the people of God. Then he goes to war with the woman. He starts chasing after this woman. But then it says this crazy thing. It says that, She's given these wings like an eagle, and she's taken away from Satan. This is a direct reference and a direct parallel to Exodus 19.4, where God uses the same metaphor, talking about this eagle, to describe him saving his people from Pharaoh in, in Egypt. So we're talking about the same thing here. We're once again talking about God saving his people, bringing them into the wilderness where they are safe, but they are reliant on him. So once again, we're returning to these Exodus parallels, to the symbolism, pointing us back to the original, to, the, to one of the original times when God saved his people and then made a covenant with them. And so then we see this period of time mentioned here 
in that same passage here, talking about this time and half time and all this, this is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. And it's meant to represent here a period of that's called a half sabbatical. Essentially, this is just a big fancy way of saying that this is, this is referring to the period of time in which the saints are going to be in the wilderness, when the saints are going to be persecuted, when the saints are going to experience suffering and hardships. And all it's saying here is that this time is brief compared to eternity. It's saying that in light of eternity, our suffering is so short and it doesn't matter. Like it's, it's hard for us now when we look at it. We experience hardships and suffering. But compared to eternity, that's nothing. Compared to eternity, it's brief. Just like how the Egyptians walking in the desert, they probably looked at that time and thought, man, we're never getting out of here. Like for them, that was a long period of time, but we look back on it now, and that's such a short amount of time that they walked in the desert for them to eventually get to the promised land that God originally promised to them. And so we see this here, this this important reminder about our suffering. And then we even see, and I love, I love this passage here because this even goes back to, to what Paul said in Romans about how for us to be glorified with Christ, we must first suffer with Christ. It just goes along with this idea that our suffering is necessary for us as well. But then what we also see here is that despite how despite how at times it may seem hard for us to trust God, despite how there are times where we look to the cross and we say, God, why am I suffering these things? Why do I feel this way now? Why do I have to endure this life for so long? Especially when the church is persecuted and we see the Christians are killed and we see all of, and we see the saints suffering for the sake of the gospel. Whenever we see these things, we can look back to passages like this and know that God is using this vision here to show us just like, both, just like both in Exodus and in Daniel, to remind us that though it may have taken some time, God has been faithful to every single promise that he ever made, and he will come back to rescue us from this world. Our suffering is nothing in light of eternity, and, and Romans tells us that it is necessary for us to be glorified with Christ, and in all of this we see the goodness of our God and the fact that he is coming back for us. And so it goes on to talk about this idea of the river out of the mouth, um, out of the mouth of the serpent coming after the woman, um, but the earth coming and to the help of the woman and all of this stuff. This is, again, just paralleling the things that happened to the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness. Like they went through a lot of hard times back then, but God always used the earth, the earth that is still under the rule of Satan. He always used the earth to supply the needs of his people. He always used natural resources to come to them and supply them and come to their aid and help them and protect them. And so that's exactly what we see here with the woman. And so then it says this really important thing at the end here, where it says, then a dragon became furious with the woman and he didn't take it out on the woman. It says he went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood in the sand of the sea. Essentially, this is, this is talking about us today. It's talking about the fact that Satan is waging war against us, the offspring of Israel, those who are in Christ, those who follow the commandments of Christ and those who are in Christ today and are offspring of Christ, who are, who are children of God because of the promise of, of, that he made all the way back to the Israelites, who are children of God because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We see that now, Satan, because he could not destroy Christ, he hates us and he's trying to destroy us. 
So, instead of destroying Christ, he has chosen to wage war with the saints. Once again, there's a lot of symbolism and parallels here. But what should we take away from this? Uh, First of all, I said this earlier, but Satan no longer has any authority over our standing before God. There is nothing that he can do to take us out from under the grasp of God. There's nothing he can do to wrestle us away from him. He, with all the authority and power that he has, he has no standing before God. And therefore, he can't tell God who we are or where we belong. That is entirely up to the finished work of Christ. Number two, we see that Christ will return to bring us out of this world of suffering. Christ will return to bring us out of this world of suffering. God has kept every promise he has ever made to us, and Christ told us that he would return again, that he would come to take us out of this sinful world and bring us to the new earth that's not marred by the effects of sin, where we can be glorified and in perfect communion and fellowship with him. So we see that that Christ is still coming back to this world, that he is still going to redeem his creation. And finally, we see that our suffering is both necessary and brief in light of eternity. Our suffering is both necessary and brief in light of eternity. I'm sure nobody enjoys suffering. Nobody enjoys hardships. Nobody enjoys when things go wrong. But it's passages like this that remind us that there's a reason that we go through this suffering. There's a reason that we experience hurt and pain and hardships. There's a reason all of this happens to us. It is necessary for us in order to be glorified with Christ. But it's also brief because he is coming back one day. And in the grand scheme of things, we're not suffering for long before he comes and makes everything right. And what we experience now, the suffering we experience now is not even worth comparing to what is to come. So the bottom line is, is that all the symbolism here, all this imagery here, all of, it is, all of it is meant to show us the victory of Christ above all things, over sin and death, over Satan, over this world, over everything that's happening here. But also, we see the promises that he has made to us and the promises that he will continue to fulfill and keep over and over and over again until he consummates all of history and all of time, until we are complete in our glorification, in our sanctification, until we're like him. And in all of this, we can see that one day we will experience perfect fellowship with Christ our King. Let's pray. God, you are so good and righteous and holy. God, I thank you so much for passages like this where we can see over and over again the promises that you have made to us and the promises that you will keep. God, where we can see the fact that you came and you you were born and you lived a sinless and perfect life in our flesh. And then you died a perfect death on the cross, one that you didn't deserve, but we did. God, I thank you that you have defeated the greatest enemy of all and that we have now nothing to fear because the battle has been won for us and our salvation is secure in you. God, help us to live this out in our lives. Help us to be the type of people who live out the grace and mercy that you have shown us. And God, help us to be the type of people who make much of you in everything that we do. And I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.